I'm Margaret Preston, and today in conjunction with our POP Profile Series, we have Dr. Christine Doss Esper. Um, she's here with us as the Associate Professor in the Department of Neurology at Emory University. Dr. Esper, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very yeah. excited. It's our pleasure. Well, we have a lofty agenda. I'd like to jump right in and begin our conversations around your areas of research. Um, and I'd like to first start with your 3D motion lab. So at a high level, share with us what's going on in that lab and what you all are working on. Yes. Uh, at Emory in the Brain Health Center, we have a 3D motion capture lab that we use to analyze the movements of our patients. And in our lab, we primarily focus on gait and tremor analysis. So the lab has a recording space of about uh, three meters by 4.6 meters. We actually have uh, in outside of the recording space, 14 cameras surrounding that area, and they measure the patient's movements 120 times per second. Wow, that's incredible. Well, walk us through what the patient experience is like in the study. Um, in other words, what are the facets really needing to be studied and what symptoms are being studied within the lab? Sure. So prior to the procedure, the patients are notified that this definitely is a unique uh, type of experience. They do need to arrive a bit earlier um, as they uh, need to dress up into a, a tight-fitting black outfit. And the reason for that is because we place 60, that's six zero reflective markers on body, bony landmarks throughout the body. Mm -hmm. We also place extra markers on the hands, which is different from what you may see uh, in folks that do 3D motion capture for rehab purposes. And the reason for that is that we're also interested in tremor analysis. So a lot of detail on the hands as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, the patient then goes through a standard protocol of tasks where we measure different tremor types. So rest, posture, and action-dependent tremors. And then we also have the patients walk across the recording field a couple of times uh, for two different tax, uh, tasks. We measure common gait indices such as speed, uh, step stride length, turning, in addition to 3D joint kinematics. And what I mean by that is we also have a 3D skeletal image of the patient and even like side or sagittal views, we can quantify the patient's stooped posture, arm swing, and leg swing. And one of the things that really makes um, 3D motion capture unique as compared to other modalities such as a gait mat, which is fairly common in movement disorder centers these days, is we have that whole additional data set of the whole body movement. Right. And this is critical when you consider you know, the complexity of pro progressive gait and Parkinson's disease. Absolutely. So I think our next question can resonate with a lot of our listeners. How do you negate or mitigate um, within your research the fluctuation in PD symptoms? So thinking about on-off times, good, good days, bad days, these changes, I would presume, give you a little bit of variability within the gate as you're assessing uh, the patient. So how do you mitigate some of that fluctuation and kind of work around it? You, you are absolutely correct. So as the disease progresses, the patients do have what we call these motor fluctuations where they have on periods and off periods. And that uh, becomes a time where we try to help uh, bridge that time, particularly the off period with medications. I will say in the motion capture lab, we have a standard protocol in which we have the patients off medication state. So we ask that they hold their meds from the night before or at least 12 hours um, off medication so that we have a, a baseline 
measurement of what their gate is off. And um, that way we can always compare it to repeat uh, procedures. Now, the gate issues are not always very predictable. Um, some may respond to levodopa therapy, some do not. And this certainly can be very frustrating to the patient and challenging uh, as a clinician. Yeah, it sounds like you are working hard to control the things you can control within the study environment. Um, well, talking about freezing of gait and it being really an imperative symptom to explore, what are the consequences of kind of ignoring or not exploring the symptoms, the symptoms of uh, called freezing of gait? Um, why is it so important to explore this symptom and what are the consequences of it? So freezing of gait is... Uh a real area of interest for Parkinson's disease. We have good pharmacological control for the motor symptoms early on, but as I mentioned, as, as it progresses, you start having the motor fluctuations. Patients often deal have the gait imbalance complaints. They can also have um, dyskinesias, which are the involuntary movements. And uh, while some of these symptoms can respond to surgical intervention, not all of them do. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say the freezing of gait is a particularly frustrating one for patients. It's when they they feel the sudden, like they'll, they'll walk or want to walk and they had a, have a sudden arrest in stepping and they almost feel like they're glued to the ground. Um, and this is something we're, we're interested in studying in the lab. And we've had a number of studies looking at this as well. Yeah. Well, as we look at gait therapies, current gait therapies, um, can we really rely on DBS to always address or fix freezing a gait? Unfortunately, I would say that is not the case. Mm -hmm. So when we assess a patient for DBS, uh, initially we have to ensure that we've maximized opti optimal medical therapy. Um, that's not always the case. Um, assuming that is the case, then we formally test the patient off meds, as I mentioned, and on, on meds and assess their uh, motor response to dopaminergic therapy. And we actually quantify this with specified motor skills. Um, we do like to see an improvement in the motor skills. There, there are some exceptions to that, but in general, that's uh, one of the indications that we look at. Um, we also define, like, what are the specific complaints Mm -hmm. that the patient wants to address and can we can we treat that with surgery now gait imbalance is a common one and uh, back to your question can't we rely on dbs to treat it now when we do test the patients off and on there are some instances where a patient is, is literally wheelchair bound off medicine and then after they take their meds and the meds kick in they can get up and walk we do uh counsel patients that we expect them to be as good as they are on their med medications with some exceptions, but for a, a good subset of patients, the, the medication does not help the gait. And in that case, we, we would not expect that DBS would help the gait as well. That makes sense. That was very clear. And I think that'll resonate with a lot of listeners thinking, um, what would be appropriate and what's not, and not always assuming there's a lot of variability um, with DBS and the outcomes associated with it. So thank you, that was that was very clear. Um, well, as we wrap up the motion capture part of your research, what's the ultimate goal um, of motion capture and movement disorders? How do we perceive the connectivity between human movement and technology really evolving for people with PD? 
So I say we're in a very unique position here at Emory with our 3D motion capture lab. It is um, not common to have this in a, in a large movement disorder center. They're, they're definitely popping up in various areas. I think they're more common um, in Europe. Um, we have a data set, probably over a thousand at this point of patients that we've tested in the lab. We have a number of ongoing projects. Uh, a few have included freezing of gait. Uh, recently, we actually uh, published a study that looks at the phenotypic spectrum of freezing of gait to assess the possible existence of subtypes. Um, we have a couple of abstracts that we're presenting at the American Academy of Neurology in a couple months, and um, that utilizes some machine learning to predict various aspects of Parkinsonism and freezing of gait. Um, another thing is to look at, you know, we have quantitative data, both tremor and gait for these patients, pre and post. We actually have the patients come back about 12 months after surgery. So we have the opportunity to look at different targets, um, compare unilateral versus bilateral stimulation, and quantify the improvement on a variety of aspects. We have quantitative tremor data, um, gait indices, as well as the 3D joint kinematics. Um, which really can provide, you know, once we analyze that data, we can improve the care of Parkinson's patients moving forward. Definitely. And you have that long-term um, ability to kind of assess people throughout uh, years, really. So, and that's so important as symptoms evolve, uh, the progression evolves, and you better understand the outcome on a long-term basis. That's right. Um, well, I'd like to move on to another area of your research um, related to telemedicine, um, an area that's really progressive for those with a progressive disease. Um, it's so necessary, rather. And I'd like to, of course, talk about um, how important it is and the work that you're doing um, related to telemedicine, um, specifically DVS teleprogramming, which is really fascinating um, and something I'd like to jump into. So talk to us about how this can be successfully done and what you're working on as it relates to DVS teleprogramming. Sure. So I will say it really wasn't until the pandemic hit us in March of 2002 that really um, moved this endeavor forward for, for many centers. Uh, I remember when our division had an emergency meeting, it was on a Sunday morning, you know, our director said our clinics are shut down, you know, we have to figure out how we're going to manage patients moving forward. And literally within a week, we had a movement disorder center uh, via telemedicine. Yeah. And we essentially saw all of our patients with the exception of those requiring procedures, which was the Botox patients uh, via telemedicine. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say from a programming st standpoint, of course, there were limitations. We could not program remotely. Mm -hmm. It actually was very, uh, we had some very challenging times when patients reported that their batteries were dying and we could not communicate with the battery in real time to see mm -hmm. how much time they had left. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I'm a bit biased as a DBS specialist, but certainly the platform that's available now through Abbott, the, what they call the Neurosphere Virtual Clinic, does allow us to remotely program patients. And it has been a real game changer for some patients as, you know, as the disease advances, they have limited mobility and transport can become a real limitation for this group. Yeah. And I love that you said that. Um, and I tried to start the conversation saying how 
it's it's so needed. I think we think of telehealth as something related to COVID, but with working with people with neurological disorder and ones that are progressive, I think um, it's good to kind of change the way we view it as something so important for neurological disease, not just uh, COVID. They're not mutually exclusive. So um, it's really important um, work to continue from a telehealth standpoint. Um, share with our listeners the general feedback that you've received so far from those who have been a part of teleprogramming. So I will say the patients that I have used it for thus far have really enjoyed it and Mm -hmm. they want to continue uh, being programmed remotely. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, I do not necessarily offer it to all the patients. So I am I also do the DBS pre-surgical evaluations. I'll determine if someone is a candidate. And in that documentation, if we are going to move forward, I will also uh, document my recommendations for targeting as well as, you know, whether what type of uh, DBS um, programmer I recommend. Okay. Now, if a patient, uh, let's say, has some cognitive impairment and is living alone without support, mm-hmm. Uh, I may not necessarily recommend remote programming for them. That just may be too difficult for them. Uh, The other thing to consider is geographical restrictions. So I can only program patients um, in the state of Georgia because I have a Georgia medical license. I know this may vary uh, by provider, but in general, this is fairly common practice at academic centers. So while I may have a patient located in South Carolina, I would not offer that option uh, to them. Right. But I will say for the ones that uh, do use it and um, do have that capability, I think it's an excellent option. And it's important to keep in mind, you're not necessarily committing someone just to teleprogramming. They can still come in. It can be a hybrid type of relationship where if I feel like I need to do more hands-on exam or programming, they should come in for a hands-on visit. Yeah, and it's nice to have that flexibility. Is cer- certainly if a care partner isn't there to drive them, or they're just having a hard time with mobility. So it's just offering, I think, a lot of flexibility for you as a physician as well as a patient. So that can only be a good thing. That's right. Um, well, what is your vision for the future as it relates to teleprogramming um, really becoming a mainstay? And would you say that improving overall health equities would really be the precursor to success in DBS teleprogramming? So things like ensuring folks have um, the technology within their home and some of those other factors that aren't always equal. So I do think uh, the remote programming is a, a very viable option for select DBS patients moving forward. And I, and I would like to see it continue. Yeah. Um, there certainly have been a number of studies on healthcare disparities in telemedicine, and there, there are a variety of factors that play a role here. There's uh, finances, which goes back to access to transport, uh, whether or not they have an adequate internet connection, um, educational level. Are they even aware that this exists? Do they right. even know that I'm at Emory and can see me for this type of visit, Mm -hmm. as well as age and race. Mm -hmm. So we actually published our experience uh, at Emory when we rapidly implemented a telemedicine platform in movement disorders within a week. And we we actually found some disparities in our uh, study as well. Uh, Men were more likely to transition to a telemedicine visit. 
Um, Blacks and minorities were less likely to engage in these visits as compared to Caucasians. And I would say the next step is to close this gap to improve medical care for all. Yeah, that's very well said and very transparent of you all um, to identify these things as well. I think that's definitely, like I said, I think a precursor to start starting to think about that and having those discussions. Um, well, I'd like to move on to your third area uh, within your body of work, um, and it relates to the work you're doing with the CDC and the National Neurological Condition Surveillance System, or the NNCSS. Um, MS and PD, Parkinson's disease, were chosen as the conditions to focus on in the initial demonstration. So share with our listeners what type of surveillance is being done and why it's important. So interestingly, I will say that formal public health training is lacking in medical school education. I could say that for myself. I have, there's actually more neurologists that we've onboarded on the team. Uh, They say the same, and many do not understand the purpose of surveillance. Mm -hmm. So it is a continuous systematic collection of uh, review and interpretation of health-related data and the purpose is to estimate prevalence, incidence, and mortality of various diseases. Right. So NNCSS chose MS and PD as the first demonstration projects. Now, I was not involved in that decision. I was consulted after the fact, given my expertise in Parkinson's disease. But the reason being is because they're two very different neurological disorders, but they both still have significant morbidity. They uh, place a substantial burden on patients and families, and they have engaged in advocacy groups and stakeholders and advocacy is an important part of this as well. So given the increased burden of neurological diseases overall, uh, this is important information as it may further catalyze research, improve diagnosis and treatment, and ultimately improve the health outcomes for millions of people moving forward. That's fantastic. What what cross-section of people make up the surveillance team? Um, and what is your role as a physician? So I I have a number of roles at uh, the, in this NNCSS, but I will say the group that is doing most of this um, analysis is what we call the neuroepidemiology team. And that includes health scientists from the CDC, as well as Uh, outside neurology consultants based upon their specific uh, disease of focus. So I've been working with a team since 2019. My role is a senior neurology consultant for Parkinson's disease. I I have also been assisting with some of the work uh, with MS, particularly reviewing uh, quality of reporting. But uh, we also do have an MS senior neurology consultant as part of the team as well. Okay. And and do you think, is it a possibility or perhaps you all are already doing this, but for the states that have the Parkinson's disease um, registries, can you all work, can the surveillance team work in tandem with those, that information and data within states? So th- that is a great question. And we actually also have consulted with external uh, Parkinson's disease experts. One of them actually is involved in the California, actually two of them, in the California Parkinson's disease registry. Um, That being said, our focus is is a little bit different. So when you consider surveillance work, um, we gather data and prevalence of diseases and populations, whereas registries will systematically collect data on specific individuals. Um, They may have patient identifiable information, biological specimens, um, which is not what we do in surveillance. Okay. 
thank you for kind of drawing that line and and, and clarifying that. Um, what is the goal of the NNCSS and what does success look like um, really in the PD world? So the goal of NNCSS is to calculate, well, right now, calculate estimates of prevalence and beyond for MS and PD. Mm -hmm. We actually uh, are almost done with our PD report, should be available on our website shortly. Um, currently working on the MS report. Um, publications will follow after this. But after this initial demonstration project of MS and PD, uh, we would like to apply our methodology to a standard surveillance approach mm -hmm. and expand it to include additional neurological conditions. Uh, so we want to mimic what we've done um, thus far. And I'll say from a Parkinson's standpoint, accurately identifying prevalence, incidence, and other comorbidities is critical as we plan for the future, given the growing numbers of neurodegenerative disorders. Absolutely. Um, well, I'd like to wrap up our conversation related to the areas in which you are exploring in your research and move on to more general Parkinson's disease uh, questions. Since we do have a neurologist right in front of us, I'd like to ask um, just some general questions and get your take and, and thoughts on, on these questions. So, you know, as we know, uh, Parkinson's is often synonymous with a tremor and involuntary movements, but there's so many other intricacies about the disease associated with the disease. Um, if you could shed a light on a lesser known symptoms with symptom within the disease, what would it be and why? So uh, I definitely see a more biased population as I'm a DBS specialist, but I think many people don't realize uh, a symptom called off dystonia. And that is when as, as the disease progresses, you know, a patient will, instead of having a uh, constant control, they start having the, the ups and downs. Um, some patients experience very severe cramping and pain in the off state. Um, it is often in the toes and the foot. And they'll have like toe curling when they're off. Mm -hmm. And this potentially could be an indication for DBS. And a lot of times uh, people may not realize that is actually a symptom of the off phenomenon of Parkinson's rather than, you know, just dystonia. Interesting. Thank you for elaborating on that. Um, what would you say is the biggest barrier to advancements in treatment options, um, as well as ultimately unlocking the cure for Parkinson's? Um, I know that's a loaded question. And, uh, it's just a question that everyone wants to ask the, the neurologist. Um, I think sometimes people think, well, you know, we've been, we, the mainstay treatment is levodopa, of course, carbidopa for quite a long time. So people are saying, knocking on doors saying, um, what's the biggest barrier to advancements of the disease, treatment, cure, et cetera. So I'd love to hear your take. So th that's a tough one. I'd say there's many factors play a role here. Um, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. I'll say two main things. Um, and not this doesn't directly answer your question, but early detection, I think, would help guide us regarding various treatment modalities. There's, there's a lot of work with that. But if, if you talk about how can we cure Parkinson's, you need to target the ultimate cause, which would be the dopamine depletion in the basal ganglia. And if we can ultimately identify the cause of this depletion and reverse it, uh, we would be on the potential road to recovery. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, well, we've certainly covered a few areas of your research um, that can really be visualized in the future, which is really exciting. Um, in addition to the areas of your work, what are some of the other projects and research just within the global PD world that really excite you that you're you're excited to see com coming down the pipe? I, I mean, I obviously am interested in the tremor analysis and gait, but one of the things I found very fascinating is... Um, I have patients that talk about music therapy and dance mm -hmm. to help treat their Parkinson's disease and rehab. And this is both from a motor as well as a mental standpoint. And I know there have been a number of studies that publish this, but I, I find that extremely fascinating and something that we should explore further as it's uh, non-invasive and should be pursued. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are you, I guess, referencing as we explore on what you said, um, some of the neuroplasticities associated with dance and that research? I have, I'm referring to that. And I've also seen some studies in which, I mean, they do, they do test gait mm -hmm. more in on a gait map, but also some with 3D motion capture where um, they have some progressive gait disorder. And then if you turn on music mm -hmm. that can help them yeah. overcome whatever uh, deficiency they're they are experiencing which yeah. I, I find very interesting the world of music therapy is is fascinating I, I agree um well as we wrap up um share with your listeners how folks can learn more about you your research get involved if they're local um share with us how we can learn more about it so I would love to have folks reach out. I know my information is available on the Emory website, um, including my interests, a bio, publications. Um, we are in the process of uh, working on setting up a, a better website for the Motion Lab. There are some pictures of it um, at this time, but I actually want to create a, a dedicated website for that and an email address so patients can reach out to us. Um, I know the word's getting out because we've had various requests, um, even from just some sports requests, which isn't quite what we do in our lab. Um, but certainly, you know, we're happy to provide more detailed information and um, show what we can do to help patients Absolutely. with Parkinson's. Yeah, and we will certainly put the links to um, the lab as well as your page at Emory um, at the end of this uh, presentation so folks can access it. Um, Dr. Esper, I can't thank you enough for sharing your world um, as busy as it is, as well as kind of your general outlook as we look at Parkinson's tomorrow um, and you sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you very much for the invite. I really do appreciate it. Thanks.